You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, I don't know about you, but I am going to be glad when I do not have to talk about circumcision anymore. That is what we have been talking about for all of Acts chapter 15. And it's not that I'm never going to talk about circumcision again, because it does come up in the next chapter. I'm sure you'd be glad to hear about that. But it has been the subject of our focus for the last three weeks, as we have been in Acts chapter 15. And you'll need your Bibles open to be looking at some verses there. It seems difficult for us, at least, to sort of put ourselves in the cultural Jewish mindset of the first century and to really appreciate from their perspective all that was going on and all that they were going through and to really see why it is that this thing was so significant. A whole chapter out of only 28 really devoted to this subject of of deciding on the subject of circumcision, whether it is necessary or not. And in our culture, in our context, 2,000 years later, it's difficult for us to understand why was there so much passion attached to this? Why was there so much significance attached to this? Why did they care? I would venture to say that if it weren't for Acts chapter 15, the subject of circumcision probably has not come up in your home in the last year, has it? Probably not something you discuss around the dinner table, unless you have one of the teens who has been involved in our student ministries, then they may have raised it because they just got done studying the book of Galatians, which tackles that subject. But apart from having a teen in our student ministries, or apart from Acts chapter 15, we don't discuss it. And so it's difficult for us to really appreciate it, which is why I have tried to sort of put modern day clothes on this issue, if you will. To sort of describe it and put it in our context in a way that we can really appreciate the significance of what is being discussed at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Because there is nothing new under the sun, and what the enemy tried to do in A.D. 49 in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 is the same thing that he tries to do today, but he dresses it up differently and he disguises it. It is the same error in different clothes, if you will. And so I have tried to sort of put this down to what is really the issue. What is the issue at stake? The issue really is not circumcision, is it? The issue really is the gospel. The nature of the gospel. What is the gospel? How is a man made right before God? Does the Old Testament law have anything to do with it? Does circumcision have anything to do with it? Do my works and what I contribute to my salvation have anything to do with it? That really is the issue. Today the enemy dresses the issue up in different garb, and I have suggested some to you over the course of the last few weeks. For instance, baptism can't be saved without it. Or some say you can't be saved without it. It's the same issue. The issue is the gospel. What is it that saves a man? Is it faith plus baptism? Or is it faith? Is it faith plus circumcision? Or is it just faith? And then there is the um, the tongues crowd. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Or some say. Because the evidence of the filling of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. And God gives the Spirit only to believers, and so all believers will speak in tongues, and if you don't speak in tongues, you must not be saved. It's faith plus tongues talking. 
Well, is it faith plus tongues talking or is it just faith? And then there is the crowd that says, you have to work to keep your salvation once you're saved. These are the people that say, I will trust Jesus to save me, but from that point forward, it's all me. Jesus might have saved me, but I'll keep me saved. Thank you very much. And then there is the um, the baptism and the security of the believer crowd. There's tongues talking and Sabbath keeping. You can't be saved if you're not going to keep the Sabbath. God never changed the fourth commandment. So you need to worship on Saturday. And only those who worship on Saturday are really God's people. And on it goes. It's the same error, repackaged in different forms every time. And really what the enemy wants us to do is to think in our minds, Jesus has done 99% of it, now I cover the last 1%. By something that I do, something that I contribute, something that I offer. I help God save me. It's either faith plus something I do, or it is faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. That's the issue in Acts 15. That was the issue in the Reformation. That was the issue with Martin Luther. And it is still the issue today because the enemy tries to do the same thing. It's faith plus you have to do this. To be holy, to be truly acceptable in the sight of God, to be saved. Christ is good as far as He goes, but He doesn't go far enough. Well, that's an error. So we are in Acts chapter 15, and so far we are looking at this subject because really it it asks the question, what must a man do to be saved? Why is it that we are so prone to add to grace? You ever ask yourself that question? Why is it we're so prone to add to the gospel? Man does it, and he's done it for 2,000 years. Why do we do it? It boils down to pride. It boils down for the inability for us to accept the fact that God does not need our help to save us. That's what it boils down to. We desperately want something, anything about my salvation that I can boast in. The Scripture is clear. Boasting is excluded. God has worked in such a way that salvation is of the Lord. And you and I have no part in it. So that we cannot boast. We cannot boast about our faith. We cannot boast about our ability to believe. We cannot boast about our repentance. We cannot boast about anything, for it is all a gift. The whole package. The same grace that saves is the grace that gives me grace to believe and to repent and to turn to Christ. For I am unable as a natural man to do any of those things. And really, I would say that Martin Luther had it right. He said that this evil is planted in every human heart by nature. That if God were willing to sell His grace to us, we would accept it more readily and more gladly than when He gives it to us. If God were willing to sell His grace to us, we would accept it more readily and more gladly than when He gives it to us. We just are too proud to take a gift and to say, I will accept salvation. It comes to me as a gift from God and I will glorify Him and Him alone for it. Is not the most significant, the most important, and the most eternal question that you could ever ask this question. How can a man be right in the sight of God? Isn't that the most significant question you could possibly ask? How can I as a depraved, wicked sinner stand in the presence of a holy God, uncondemned, clean, and forgiven? How is that possible? I need clemency. I need to be acquitted. I need to be declared righteous in the court of heaven. And how am I going to stand before the judge of the universe and hear him declare to me innocent of all crimes? Because I know I'm guilty. 
I know I'm a sinner. My sins are ever before me. They're ever before everybody. I cannot deny them and I cannot stand in the presence of God and offer excuse for them. So how can I gain clemency? How can I be declared right in the sight of God? We've been looking at Acts 15 and taking our time because that is the key question that is on trial. How is a man made right before God? Is it faith plus circumcision? Or is it faith? plus nothing else. No additions. And friends, the enemy would love for us to accept as true those distortions and those additions and those pollutions to the gospel that render it powerless to save. Which is what happens. When you add something to the gospel, you take away its ability to save the soul. Because there is only one gospel that is the power of God into salvation. Everything else is a damning heresy. That's basically what it boils down to. So Acts chapter 15 we have looked so far at the debate that sort of sparked this council. That was verses 1 through 5. Then we looked at the discussion that was held concerning this issue. We looked at how the Apostle Peter testified that the gospel of grace was demonstrated in Cornelius. Cornelius was saved and sanctified and forgiven and filled with the Spirit apart from circumcision and apart from the works of the law, Peter said. So we shouldn't impose the law on Gentile believers because it was a yoke that we, neither we nor our fathers could bear. And then Paul and Barnabas got up and they testified as to the signs and wonders that God did through them among the Gentiles. Paul argued that the gospel of grace was authenticated in signs. And then James, who is, seems to be the ruling or at least the leading elder of the group, stands up and James testified that the gospel of grace was predicted by the prophets. Amos foresaw a time when God would justify the Gentiles on the basis of faith alone. So if God did not need it with Cornelius and God is not going to require it in the future with Gentiles, then why would we require it now? And so James put forth a proposal. And do you remember what the proposal was? I suggest that we lay upon these Gentile believers no greater burden than this that they abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from food which had been strangled, from blood, and from fornication. And leave it at that. That was a brilliant proposal. So we've looked at the debate, that, or the disagreement, and the discussion. Today we're going to look at the decision that was reached, and then the delight that that decision caused. The decision that was reached. What did James propose? He said this, I suggest that we write them a letter, and that we ask them, keep away from these four things. Fornication, food polluted by idols, strangled animals, and blood. Stay away from those things. Let's lay no other burden upon them except those basic restrictions. Now this is an ingenious proposal because it does two things. Number one, it, pre it pre preserves the purity of the gospel. The council affirms it is not by circumcision, it is not by the law, it is by grace and grace alone. The second thing is it does is it preserves the unity of the church by giving to the Gentiles something that they could do, concessions that they could make to make table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles possible. How can a Jew and a Gentile sit down at the same table and enjoy the church potluck? Simple this. Simply this. Stay away from food that has been offered to idols. Stay away from bloody food. And stay away from fornication. Those things will contribute to whole fellowship within the church. So it preserved the purity of the Gospel. It preserved the unity of the church. And James called for concessions on both sides of the aisles. Now this is how it all breaks down. He said to the Jews, look, accept the Gentiles as your brothers in Christ. These Gentiles over here, accept them as your brethren. Don't bring up the subject of circumcision or the law. It's not necessary. Leave it alone. They're saved by faith, by faith alone, just as you are. And then to the Gentiles, he said, look, don't needlessly offend your Jewish brethren. 
Stay away from food that's been sacrificed to idols. Stay away from blood. Stay away from meat that has been strangled and fornication. And so in doing that, he has brought the church together. He has preserved the purity of the gospel and the unity of the church. Now James suggested that they do two things. Look at verse 22. So it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And then they sent a letter to them. So they chose to do two things. This was their decision. First, we'll send two men. Judas, who's called Barsabbas, and Silas. Later on in the New Testament, Silas is also referred to as Silvanus. It's the same Silas that goes with Paul on his missionary journey. You're going to see that Silas becomes as much of a character in the following chapters of the book of Acts as Barnabas was in the previous chapters of the book of Acts. And you're going to see why next week. Why Silas replaces Barnabas. One of the most interesting passages in all of the book of Acts. In fact, I've been looking forward to the end of Acts chapter 15 for many, many, many weeks. In fact, since I began the book of Acts. I kind of wish we could jump ahead and do Acts 15, the last passage in there, because it's really good. You're going to like that. So Silas is the one who replaces Barnabas at the end of that of that chapter. This guy Judas Barsabbas. There's one other Barsabbas mentioned in the book of Acts. Chapter 1, do you remember when they wanted to replace Judas and they put forward two men? One's name was Joseph, called Barsabbas, and the other one was Matthias. It's possible that this Joseph and this Judas are somehow related, maybe brothers, but they both have the same surname, and they're both in Jerusalem. So it's possible that this Judas... His brother almost became an apostle, but Matthias got chosen by Lot instead. So they send these two men down to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now there's a really good, practical, wise, reasonable reason why they would send these two men. Why didn't James just write the letter and send it with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch? Why send two men from the Jerusalem church down there? Do you know why it is? Well, imagine what would happen if the apostle Paul got back to report to the church in Antioch, and the church in Antioch said, so what was the decision? What decision did the council render? Well, they affirmed my gospel. They affirmed the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. So we've been right. The gospel that we've preached among the Gentiles is the true gospel. But then there are false teaching Pharisees and Judaizers who were there in Antioch teaching the brethren that a man must be circumcised if he is to be saved. And what would their rejoinder be? We can't trust you to report accurately what happened in Jerusalem. You have a vested interest in this. You're far from an unbiased resource. Well, Paul could say, I've got the letter right here from James. Here it is with his signature. How do we know that you and Barnabas didn't write that letter on your way down to Antioch and sign James's name to it? So what do they do? They send Judas and Silas. Here are two men, one a Hellenistic Jew or one a Greek Jew and one more of a Hebrew Jew, sent down to Antioch. So you have the testimony of five sources. James's letter, Judas, Silas, Paul, and Barnabas. They're doing everything in their power to make sure that the truth is communicated and that nobody can question it. Nobody could accuse Paul of spinning the details of what happened at the council in his favor. You know, people say, well, you hear what you want to hear? That's what they would have said of Paul. You only heard at the council what you wanted to hear. And that was them affirming your gospel. How do we know that that's true? You're far from unbiased. But second, they send a letter. The letter is quoted, and it's probably set apart as such a quotation in verse 23. They send a letter by them, and here's the letter. The apostles and the brethren who are elders... To the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Now, it's a real humble, real gentle way of introducing the letter. And I want you to notice that the letter is designed to do three things. 
First, the letter is designed to identify the false teachers. Look at verse 24. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. Who is he referring to? Chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and began teaching the brethren that unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. These are the false teachers who had come down from the Jerusalem church to Antioch to begin teaching there. And they did, and they were teaching a false gospel. But here James distances himself. We gave these men no instruction. Now, do you remember the book of Galatians was written before the Jerusalem council? And how did Paul describe those men? Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Some men came down from James. That's who they were claiming as their authority. Well, they were coming down claiming the Jerusalem church as their authority. And here James is denying it. Some men have come down to whom we gave no instruction. And then look how he describes their teaching. They've disturbed you, and they've unsettled your souls. The word disturbed there, interesting enough, is a word that means to greatly perplex, to throw something into a state of utter confusion, to instill in somebody great fear and doubt. That's the idea. It is the same word that Paul used in his damnation of this gospel, Galatians chapter 1. There are some who are troubling you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Same word. They're disturbing you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says, the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Casting him into this confusion, this doubt, murkiness. What is the truth? We thought we had believed the truth, and now we're hearing something different. That's what false teaching does. Brings in doubt, confusion. But second, James says, unsettling your souls. Interesting word, it's only used one time in all of the New Testament, and it's right here. Outside the New Testament, it's used to describe two things, going bankrupt and second, being plundered by a military force. Very descriptive word. That's what false teaching does. Some men have come in and they have disturbed you and they have bankrupted your souls. They have plundered your souls. How is that possible? Because they took the souls of these new converts who are only a few years old in the Lord, who have a simple and pure faith in Jesus, and they have brought in something that has confused it, and they have put the whole church and all of the Galatian churches into confusion and have thus plundered or bankrupted the souls of the disciples. Truth is so important and so pure because it is the only thing that can sanctify us. It is the only thing that can save us. It is the, the way by which we come to a saving understanding of Christ. And... When something mixes with that, it's just confusion and it bankrupts our souls. That's what false teaching does. They sent a letter. Man, they have cast you into confusion. And like a military force, they came into the church at Antioch and they plundered people. They plundered their souls. There are some people who come in and they teach a false and disastrous and damning doctrines, false doctrines, and the purpose of it is to draw away men after themselves, to plunder people's souls. James says that's what they've done, these false teachers. But the second purpose or point of the letter is to identify who the real teachers are. Verse 25, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And look how he describes Barnabas and Paul. They are men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Antioch knew that well, didn't it? Remember when Paul went through his little imaginary slideshow that I shared with you at the end of Acts chapter 14? You remember all of the stonings and the beatings and the running from city to city and men who tried to, to throng him and stone him and pursue him and tried to kill him? The Jerusalem church recognized these men have risked their lives for Jesus Christ. 
And we're sending with Paul and Barnabas two men. Verse 27, we've sent Judas and Silas who themselves will report the same things by word of mouth. He says this, we got, we're sending two men who are going to tell you verbally what we've put in writing. We're sending witnesses. It's not just the written word that you have a testimony of, but we're sending two men. Listen to these men. They will accurately report to you everything that happened at the council. If you're not going to believe Paul and Barnabas, believe Silas and believe Judas because we're sending them along with the letter as additional witnesses to what transpired. Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Now here's where we get to the third purpose of the letter, which was to communicate to them the decision of the council. Here's what we've decided. Now look at the language that they used to describe this. It seemed good to us. Do you notice that the apostles didn't receive a revelation about this? Do you notice that God did not speak to their minds? That God did not write it in the sky? Here with all of the elders and the pastors and the the apostles gathered together at this council to hammer this out, how did they describe their decision? Twice it says in the text, it seemed good to us. Not we got it by way of revelation, but we hammered this out, we looked at the doctrine, we looked at the text of Scriptures, we heard the testimony, and we made a wise decision. And here's what we've decided. We've decided that we're going to lay upon the Gentiles nothing greater than these four essentials. And you'll notice the four same essentials are listed that they came to the conclusion up above verse 22, that you abstain from meat which has been polluted by idols, that you abstain from animals that have been strangled, that you abstain from blood, and that you abstain from fornication. The first three have to do with food fellowship in the church. The fourth one has to do with moral purity. Stay pure and don't bring offensive food to the potluck. It's basically how it boils down. Stay away from these kinds of foods and you'll be able to enjoy fellowship together. Now, do these have anything to do with salvation? These four things, do they have anything to do with salvation? Are these requirements for salvation that they're adding to it? Nothing whatsoever to do with salvation. Everything to do with table fellowship. Everything to do with fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. Has nothing to do with salvation whatsoever. They're not adding anything to salvation. Listen, if circumcision were required for salvation, this is where we would read it. If baptism were required for salvation, this is where we would read it. If Sabbath-keeping were required for salvation, this is where we would read it. If anything at all were required other than faith and faith alone for salvation, this is where the apostles would have hammered it out and James would have put it in writing. But the unanimous testimony of the council, it seemed good to the apostles, to the elders, and to the whole church that we lay only these four things upon you. Minor concessions that you make for the sake of fellowship. No circumcision, no baptism, no Sabbath-keeping. It is grace faith, and Christ alone. Now that's the decision that they reached. Second, I want you to notice the delight that it caused. If you keep yourselves from such things, you do well, farewell. Short letter, simple. Luke probably copied it word for word right out of a document that he had available to him there with the Apostle Paul. Verse 30, So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The letter was received with celebration. There was a cheer. There was rejoicing. There was joy in the presence of the congregation. Everybody was gathered together and Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas stood up and they said, here's the decision of the council. And they read it in front of the entire church and they rejoiced. Why did they rejoice? We don't have to circumcise converts. Hey, we were hoping that that's what would come down. 
That makes evangelism among Gentiles much more difficult, doesn't it? We would like you to join our church. We would like you to come to the Savior, the Messiah, and in order to receive all of the blessings of the Messiah, we're going to have to circumcise you. This is good news to the Gentiles, to be honest with you. This is good news. And if you are a Gentile male in Antioch and you're waiting for the decision of the Jerusalem Council, you're going to rejoice. And they did. But there's other reasons for rejoicing because it goes far beyond just the issue of circumcision. Notice how the letter started out. They called them brethren. They're rejoicing because the mother church in Jerusalem is recognizing their equal and complete standing before God, Jew and Gentile alike without distinction. You are our brothers in Christ. That is encouraging words. Second, they have just affirmed Paul's ministry, Paul's gospel, and they have given a green light to evangelism among the Gentiles. That's it. That's the gospel message. Take it to the ends of the earth. That's what Jerusalem is saying. And so they're rejoicing. Hey, the way is clear now for a second missionary journey. This has been hammered out. This has been decided. This has been, we have reached a conclusion on this. We can go into all the world now without doubts about the gospel. And a victory for truth has been gained. And they rejoiced. The letter was received with celebration. Second, the letter was received with an exhortation. Look at verse 32. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. They were long-winded preachers. They got up and that was a long message that day. There are some preachers who love to hear the sound of their own voice and they love to read verses like that. A lengthy message. That's the kind of message I like, they say. That's what they did. Now what would they have to teach the church? Well, they'd have to teach the church about these four things, right? They'd also have to teach the church as to why this is important to the Jews and why these issues are coming up. Then they would have to reteach the church all about the gospel and the nature of the gospel because the false teachers had disturbed and bankrupted their souls. There's a lot of teaching to do. Paul and, uh, sorry, Silas and Judas, having taught the people, having been guest preachers in the church for quite some time, verse 33 says, when they had spent some time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. They were sent them back to Jerusalem. You've completed your job. Thank you. We appreciate your ministry, your teaching. Everything is fine. You guys are free to leave. So Silas and Judas go back to Jerusalem. Verse 34, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. You'll notice in your Bibles that that has brackets around it, likely. Maybe it's in italics. It might have some sort of a footnote. And it will say in the margin of your Bible that that is not in the earliest manuscripts. And that's true. Verse 34 was likely added in a margin by a copyist years after Luke wrote this in an attempt to explain how Paul could take Silas with him on a missionary journey if Silas went back to Jerusalem. Verse 33 says he went back to Jerusalem. Verse 34, this sort of addition that crept into the text, contradicts that. It it appeared to Silas it was good to stay there. Well, no, Silas went back to Jerusalem. When Paul wanted to take Silas, he simply called for Silas from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem came. That's not that big of an issue, is it? So verse 35 says that Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. What a wonderful resolution to this whole thing. Paul and Barnabas go right back into ministry, doing what they should have been doing and what they were doing when somebody came down and disturbed the souls of the disciples. Now, from all of Acts chapter 15, let me just pull out two sort of general principles, two sort of lessons that we learn from the whole chapter. The first one is this. We are reminded again of the importance of sound doctrine. When this threat to the gospel cropped up in the church in Antioch, the leadership there, the apostles and the elders didn't say, well, it's just somebody's opinion about things. Let's just let it ride. I mean, the important thing is that we're all love Jesus, right? Let's just all love Jesus and get along. 
Let's not make an issue over sound doctrine. No, friends, we learn the importance of sound doctrine. We learn the importance of getting the gospel right. We learn that there are certain things that are worth going to the hill over. There are certain things worth dying for. There are certain things worth splitting a church for. There are certain essentials that are so essential that we must stand up for them. And the people who split doctrinal hairs, the people who are careful with the truth, the people who say, well, that's really good, but this is not right. There's something fundamentally flawed with this man or with his teaching or with his presentation or with his doctrine. Those things are not vices. And apathy and ignorance and a nonchalant attitude to the truth is not a virtue. It's the opposite. Apathy in concerning things about the truth is a vice. And it is an invitation for error and an invitation for somebody to come in and plunder people's souls. We learn the importance of sound doctrine. The words of Paul to Timothy should forever ring in our ears. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Timothy, get it right. Keep it right. Rightly divide the word of truth. Be careful in doing it. Think clearly and be discerning. One of the greatest needs that we have in churches today is the need, is the need for discernment. We live in an age which is characterized by a smorgasbord of error. It's presented to us on every side. And people gobble it up. And it comes into the church, comes into our minds. Friends, we need to be careful about the truth. If the truth is what saves men's souls, then we can't be too careful with it, can we? Second, not only do we learn the importance of being sound in doctrine and being, I don't mean nitpicky or divisive, but I mean careful with the truth. We learn the importance of that, but also the necessity of contending earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Friends, we have been given a body of truth, and it is contained in 66 books. That body of truth is God's Word and God's Word alone. He does not speak to you outside of that book. He does not speak to you in visions and dreams and thoughts and nudgings and promptings and through bad tacos. He doesn't speak to you through those things. He doesn't carve little pictures of Mary on underpasses. He doesn't put pictures of Jesus in burritos. He has been, he has given to us a body of truth. And you and I are to contend earnestly for that body of truth, for that faith, that gospel, that truth which was once for all delivered to the saints. And we fall down desperately. If we allow error to pass and we just say, that's just his opinion, we shouldn't deal with that. We shouldn't really care. Most important thing is that, hey, he loves Jesus, right? Let's just all love Jesus. No, friends. We need to be sound in doctrine and we need to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints because we've been entrusted with that. And if we don't contend for it, the next generation is going to receive a plundered and disturbed message. So Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch. They are teaching, they are preaching, there is love, there is unity, there is peace, everything is hunky-dory, everything is wonderful. Until next week. And next week, everything falls apart. Make sure you're here to hear about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your truth and for Your Word. We thank You that men like Paul and Barnabas, men like Luther and men like Calvin, men like Augustine, men like Whitfield and Spurgeon and Edwards have stood for Your truth, guarded it, protected it, and proclaimed it and handed it to us. We thank you for men in the past who have done that, and we pray that you would make us men and women of the present who would do the same thing, to be sound in doctrine and to love your truth, to be careful with your truth, and, Father, to contend earnestly for it. For you've given it to us, and we want to hand it to those who come after us, pure and unadulterated. 
We love your word for it is by your truth that we are sanctified and set apart. We thank you for it and pray that we and commit ourselves to you today and to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.